Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The GX on Agriculture podcast has been brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. When you're in the market for a new Ford, stop by Future Ford for a great selection of new and used vehicles. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Coming up on today's program, you heard back on Wednesday that another hurdle was cleared for the use of gene-edited crops when the Canadian Food Inspection Agency set a path forward for the technology. However, not everyone is convinced it's a good idea. We'll hear from Lucy Sherratt, who is the coordinator of the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network. It's a slow start to seeding in Saskatchewan as only a few more farmers have gotten out into the field since last week. We'll hear from Provincial Crops Extension Specialist Matt Struthers. Grain markets perform better than expected this week. Adam Piccolo of PI Commodity Futures will talk to us about that. And canola growers can look forward to more cost-saving opportunities as the Canola Council of Canada gears up for year two of canola for our advantage. Warren Ward from Springside will join us on that. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. Okay. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. On Wednesday, another hurdle was cleared for the use of gene-edited crops when the Canadian Food Inspection Agency set a path forward for the technology. This is in line with Health Canada's decision one year ago, and now all that remains is clearing gene-edited plants as livestock feed. Many in the agriculture sector believe gene editing will eventually lead to higher-yielding varieties with improved drought, insect, and disease resistance. However, not everyone is convinced. Lucy Sherratt is the coordinator of the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network, its members include organic farmers and the National Farmers Union. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency has decided essentially to give a blank check to gene-edited seeds if they have no foreign DNA. And that means that those seeds will be put on the market without any independent government safety assessment. Companies will do their own assessment. If there's a problem, of course, they'll bring it to the CFIA's attention or ask the CFIA to give it a review. But we think that, at the very least, the seeds should pass by the desk of somebody at the federal government because what will happen now is that companies can put some of these gene-edited seeds, these genetically engineered seeds, onto the market without necessarily letting anyone know. So the federal government and farmers may not actually know what's on the market. Certainly consumers won't know what's on the market. She says it's possible that farmers could buy seed that they don't know has been gene edited. There's a number of systems in place by which farmers can find out that information or whereby companies do in fact want to let farmers know. 
But what's happened is the federal government has set up what they're calling a voluntary transparency, which we think it's not transparent if you're asking companies to disclose, then in fact some companies may not want to disclose their seeds are gene edited. This continues to be a controversial technology and it may be that some companies just keep their technology behind their seeds to themselves. If they don't need to tell anyone, maybe they have a reason not to. And that just introduces uncertainty. Even if every company lets the federal government, lets the public know what they intend to put on the market, we still don't know which companies, which institutions might not have actually listed their seeds. And that's one very important, we think, issue, transparency and traceability. Sherratt outlines her concerns about the gene editing technology itself. Well, the technology itself, we think, is still in need of a safety assessment by the federal government because any of these processes of genetic engineering can, in fact, introduce unintended effects. And those need to be looked for, and they need to be looked for carefully. They may not have an impact. They may not be a problem. But in fact, when you genetically engineer a seed, even using gene editing, you can create unwanted impacts in the organism. And these could end up being an environmental or even health hazard. They may not be. And the government at the moment is saying that they trust and expect plant breeders to do all the work necessary to make sure there are no unintended effects. But in fact, from our experience, even thus far with gene editing, we know that there are questions that are not being asked and that not all companies are looking to even find out if there's foreign DNA left in the seed. We already see examples of this. So we just think there needs to be government oversight at a minimum that the CFI needs to still have authority over these seeds through safety assessment. And it's not that the CFI would be blocking these seeds if they were to regulate them. It just means the federal government would know better what the science is behind the seeds and would know better what actually is happening in the marketplace. She adds organic farmers have raised some concerns about the new regulations. Organic farmers have been particularly concerned and vocal because the organic standard prohibits the use of genetic engineering, genetically engineered seeds, including gene editing. It's very clear in the standard, the definition. So the federal government has proceeded with this change to regulatory guidance, knowing that organic farmers need to be able to identify where gene edited seeds are so they don't inadvertently purchase any of those seeds. But also it's going to make it much more costly and complicated to be an organic farmer if there are a lot more gene edited seeds that are released onto the market and some of them are undisclosed, unidentified. It's going to increase the costs, it's going to increase the complexity and it's going to introduce uncertainty in the marketplace if consumers don't know what's happening and if they're concerned about finding food that's not gene edited. So it, in fact, it could also impact conventional farmers if there are governments, which there are in the moment, around the world who still regulate gene edited seeds. There's an uneven situation happening now across the world where 
many farmers, organic or not, will still need to know which seeds are gene edited. And maybe in the short term, that can easily be sorted out and identified. In the long term, it's going to get more and more complicated, more difficult for every farmer. Sherat explains what their next steps are. We have heard that the organic farmer organizations and food businesses are concerned enough that they are communicating very strongly to the Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food that this transparency is not possible without mandatory listing. And it's not going to cost the companies, the plant breeders, extra money or even extra time to list their products if there's a mandatory requirement for them to do so. It's not going to block innovation. It's just going to provide certainty, transparency, a level of predictability, an ability to do some tracing in the marketplace. And she offers these final comments. I would perhaps want to echo that this isn't about stopping innovation. Like The organic farming organizations have been very clear that they just want to be able to farm organically. They, they're not trying to stop anybody from using gene-edited seeds. They just want to know where those seeds are. That's Lucy Sherratt, coordinator of the Canadian Biotechnology Action Network. It's a coalition of groups that are concerned about regulations for gene-edited crops. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. BX94, Ag Review. After making a major change to the way it compiles data, Statistics Canada is reviewing the timing of its traditional April seeding intentions report. The 2023 report, released last week, was based on a farmer survey conducted from December to January. In the past, the April acreage estimates were based on a survey done just a few weeks earlier in late March. A Statistics Canada spokesman says the data in the April 26th report was not adjusted to account for variables which may have changed between the time of collection and the time of release. He says the agency maintained the historical April release date to ensure it had enough time to address any issues that arose from the change in methodology. He adds the Agriculture Division will be reassessing the timing of next year's seeding intentions release. Canada Malting Company, the largest Canadian malt supplier, has completed the addition of a new adjuncts processing facility and bagging line. It says this will allow for greater quality control and product modification capabilities to better serve craft brewers and distillers. Part of Canada Malting Company's portfolio includes unmalted adjuncts such as flaked oats, rye, wheat, and rice, which are used to add unique haze, body, and flavor characteristics to beer. Construction on the new facility, located in Calgary, began in 2021. The equipment was installed in the summer of 2022, and initial commissioning began in October with testing conducted over the following six months. All systems are now operational and processes have been fine-tuned to achieve quality adjuncts that meet brewer specifications. One of the biggest U.S. meat packers is creating an internal company to clean some of its processing plants after a private sanitation firm JBS USA employed 
was accused of hiring children for dangerous work. The launch shows the complexities involved in replacing Packers Sanitation Services, a firm that contracts to clean slaughterhouses. In February, the U.S. government says Packers Sanitation Services paid $1.5 million U.S. in penalties for employing more than 100 underage teenagers at meat plants across eight states. The new company, JBS Sanitation, will immediately begin the transition to cleaning 10 JBS USA facilities, which produce beef and pork. JBS Sanitation will also do in-house cleaning for Pilgrim's Pride Corporation and create hundreds of union jobs. JBS USA is the North American unit of Brazil's JBS SA, which also owns most of Pilgrim's Pride. French agricultural cooperative Lima Grain has offered to buy the 28.78% of Vilmorin it does not already own in a deal that values one of the world's biggest seed suppliers at 1.43 billion euros. Vilmorin's board said it would recommend the offer to its shareholders. After falling sharply at the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of major grain exporter Ukraine, Vilmorin's shares have yet to regain pre-war levels. Lima Grain says taking Vilmorin private would make it easier to make long-term investment decisions in a highly competitive industry and an uncertain economic climate. Vilmorin bills itself as the world's largest player in vegetable seeds. Its U.S. arm, Vilmorin Mikado USA, also handles the company's vegetable seed sales in Canada. Vilmorin competes in seeds with the likes of Bayer and Syngenta, whose owner Sinochem wants to list the Swiss-based firm in Shanghai. The New Brunswick government is moving ahead with plans to expand the province's wild blueberry industry by granting 20 leases to land formerly used as a military weapons range near Trakady. The former Trakady Range was used by the military between 1939 to 1994 and was turned over to the province in 1997. About 11% of the area has now been set aside to develop wild blueberries. New Brunswick is only one of five places in the world where wild blueberries are grown and commercially produced. And be sure to listen to the latest GX on Agriculture podcast, It's brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back in 60 seconds time. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's mainly cloudy and 15 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at the top of the hour. It's a slow start to spring seeding in Saskatchewan as only a few more farmers have gotten out into the field. Provincial Crops Extension Specialist Matt Struthers says farmers south of Swift Current have started joining their peers from the northwest, west central, and northeast regions. It all depends on the amount of snow you had, and, and if you didn't have that snow coverage, the sun uh, warmed up your soil a little bit quicker than those who might have had some snow or some water sitting on it. So uh, we're predicting that over the weekend and into next week that uh, many more producers are going to be able to get out there and, and start putting some seed in the ground. 
He says seeding has started in parts of the southern Saskatchewan area. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. Like, uh, south of Moostra, we were down south of Moostra um, uh, yesterday, and there's uh, one or two drills going out. Um, but yeah, you know, it all depends on, on where you are in that snowfall, like I said, and, and uh, how cool your soil still might be. It's a large province, so there's, there's quite a bit of variability in that temperature and that snowfall. But uh, we suspect that the southwest, uh, or sorry, southeast and the east central region towards Yorkton and, and farther up there, uh, you know, are going to be likely a little bit more delayed just with the amount of moisture they might have had um, and that cooler weather holding them back. Uh, plus, they have those heavier soils that just take a little bit longer to get rid of that water. I know between Moose Jaw and Regina, there's a lot of standing water in some fields and, and they look more like lakes than they do fields. So it'll be a little bit of time before they, they're able to soak that water up and seeds able to, or cedars are able to float across them. And Struthers says some warm temperatures will definitely result in more seeding operations. Yeah, yeah, we just need, uh, we just need, like you said, we need a good week of that, uh, those temperatures, especially overnight, right? You want to, you know, warm during the day is good, but you want to keep that uh, temperature high overnight as well to keep those soils from getting cooled off. And then, and then, yeah, the farmers will be off to the races uh, sooner, sooner rather than later, hopefully. That's Matt Struthers, the Provincial Crops Extension Specialist, with the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture, he's based in Moose Jaw. Livestock market conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for June closed at 161.92 today. That's up 35. August live cattle closed at 159.50, up 7. August feeder cattle closed at 221.42 down 172. September feeder cattle closed at 225.05. That's down 162. June lean hogs closed at 83.77, down 337. July lean hogs closed at 85.42, down 282. And that's the livestock market conditions. Canola growers can look forward to more cost-saving opportunities as the Canola Council of Canada gears up for year two of Canola 4R Advantage. Warren Ward is an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council. He first explains what 4R nutrient stewardship is. So the 4R stand for the right source, at the right rate, at the right time and at the right place. So it's really about uh, how can you maximize the the efficiency of your fertilizer and and get the most out of it that you can and you know not over apply, not under apply and you know it really uh, it go it takes the whole uh, the whole gamut of of practices into consideration there just to try and do the best job on farm with your with your um, nutrient management. He notes the Canola Council is adding some new incentives this year to expand the use of 4R nutrient stewardship. Well, for those who are familiar with the uh, with the Canola 4R Advantage program from uh, from last year, you'll you'll know that it's uh, one of uh, a number of programs out there that are offering funds through the On Farm Climate Action Fund uh, from the from the federal government. So, uh, similar to last year, we've got four BMPs that we're offering funding for implementing. And those are soil testing, the use of enhanced efficiency nitrogen fertilizers. Preferred application, which is moving from uh, fall fertilizer application to uh, spring or, or a combination of spring and, and top dressing. 
And then the fourth would be field zone mapping. So working with uh, with a uh, agronomist to designate zones within fields and, and generate maps to uh, to do some variable rate applications. So so those are the four, and that really hasn't changed at all since the first year of the program. Uh, we did get some feedback, you know, throughout the throughout the program, the first uh, first year of it, and uh, we have made a few changes here coming up for the for the second year. Uh, one of the big ones probably would be the increased funding limits for each of those BMPs. So last year uh, we had them capped at six thousand dollars per per management practice, whereas this year we're going to bump that up to twenty thousand. So hopefully that makes it uh, more more useful for people if they're trying to cover all of their canola acres. And again, our program is specific to to canola acres, so that way um, you know if they want to get all their canola acres with our program and some of their other acres with one of the other programs, it, it might work a little better for them. Uh, then we also last year had it capped at two of those management practices, whereas this year you could do all four of those management practices on your farm. So it uh, just adds a little bit more flexibility that way. And then um, similar to last year, we do have the requirement of having a 4R management plan in place. So uh, 4R is something that's quite important to us, and we've been talking about it for, for a long time. And it's nice to have these incentive dollars available now for, for implementing these practices. And as part of that, we do still have that requirement of, um, of, of working with a designated 4R agronomist to generate a 4R nutrient management plan for the farm. And so we've recognized that there is a cost uh, for those uh, for those agronomists to be doing that as well. So there is uh, some now some opportunity within the program to to uh, receive some uh, funding for helping cover the cost of working with those agronomists to generate those plans and and uh, and help administer the program. And then uh, last but not least, uh, uh, kind of a change for for this year would be so we've got uh, the the program is designed to to mitigate nitrous oxide emissions. So it's really targeted targeted at um, initiating or advancing for our practices. And so therefore we're, we're looking for new practices. But uh, if, if the practices were new last year, uh, we're still gonna be able to include them in this year's program. So if you received funding last year for soil testing, you still could receive funding this year for soil testing. And I think part of that is just to, just to try and and uh, drive home these these practices or, or um, make them more commonly used on the farm. Ward says the Canola 4R Advantage program was pretty popular last year. It was pretty good. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me here, but uh, um, definitely uh, between our program and, and some of the other ones out there, I think there was a, a fair bit of uptake and uh, also some feedback with that, which is what led to some of these uh, adjustments for the second year for us as well. He says the Canola Council will be accepting applications for this year's program soon. We actually haven't opened up the registration or the application process for for the second year of the program yet. Uh, we're anticipating that will happen in June. So I would I'd advise people to to keep their eyes and ears open. Uh, you know, once seeding is wrapping up there uh, early June, and 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 keep an eye out for that. Um, so eligible expenses for the second year of the program will be anything between April 1st of 2023 and March 31st of 2024. So expenses within that window is what will be eligible for for this second year of the program and if anybody's looking for more information on it they can always go to our canola council of canada website uh, canolacouncil.org and uh, there's a for our advantage page on there that they can go and check out all the all the fine details there 
Ward adds that the Canola Council is also collaborating on 4R demonstration sites in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Yeah, there there will be. Um, I think uh, so. We're uh, we're working with uh, IHARF down at Indian Head to uh, to get a, a demonstration site going there. It would be probably the the closest one to uh, to the to the Yorkton listener region. Um, and then uh, yeah, we're uh, we're hoping to have some good demonstrations there and uh, and have lots of opportunities to to tour that one. Warren Ward is an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada based at Springside, just west of Yorkton. Please stay tuned. GX on Agriculture will be back in one minute's time. Future Ford has been serving the Melville area for over 30 years. They focus on the future. Their staff are ready for what's to come. Ford Tech is changing all the time with new vehicle technology like EV, self-driving, and more. Get ready to drive into the future. Why? Because the future is Future Ford. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Grain markets perform better than expected this week. PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo says the July canola contract was as low as $693.10 on Monday, but rebounded to around $735, while the July Minneapolis wheat contract was up by $0.30 a bushel to $8.28 for the week. Piccolo says uncertainty around the Russia-Ukraine Black Sea grain deal and other commodity prices surging were some of the factors. On the wheat front, uh, it seems like we are seeing a reversal in all three wheat contracts. Escalating tensions in the Black Sea region has really traders uh, uncertain if the safe corridor that allows Ukraine to export crops through the Black Sea will be extended beyond May. Uh, Wheat in much of the European Union has seen favorable conditions so far this spring. Uh, The U.S. Department of Agriculture next week will issue its first global estimates for the 23-24 season. So that's something that traders are going to definitely be watching for next week. And on the canola front, uh, one of the reasons why we're seeing kind of a strong resurgence here is there has been uh, a surge in palm oil overnight here. uh, And really outside kind of forces have turned positive for the canola front with uh, July soybeans closing kind of higher here recently. Uh, Same with, again, the soybean oil and then the palm oil too. So uh, canola might kind of get back up to around that 750 area on the July contract and I think this might give uh, producers maybe the opportunity to be hedging some new crop uh, on the January and, and November contracts kind of in those further out months. He says current events in Ukraine affects wheat more. I would say this week, definitely on the on the wheat front, that's kind of a huge uh, a huge component with uh, the drone strike on the Kremlin this week and Ukraine saying it it wasn't them, uh, and then that's when there was supposed to be a meeting today with both sides in in Moscow today. Actually, I, I don't believe that uh, is happening now. So uh, again, just adding those types of tensions, uh, seeing the spikes in the in the wheat market, but. Honestly, I've seen this happen before, escalating tensions, grain markets rally, 
and then something happens over the weekend overnight and, and grain markets fall back down. So uh, I'm definitely being proactive in talking with clients about uh, protecting some of their new crop prices, especially if, if they're not sold very much. So it's something I will definitely be talking to clients next week about. And, and those that are interested, uh, feel free to visit my website, prairiecommodities.com. And Pacallo gives his outlook for next week. Well, next week, I think traders, again, will be watching the uh, the USDA report is one to kind of give some give some signs for maybe where kind of the, the global production and, and supply are. And that might set the tone kind of next week. That's Adam Piccolo, a commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. Commodities Update. Canola futures closed up across the board today. July canola closed at 735.10. That's up $20 per metric ton. November canola closed at $711, up $17.80. July Minneapolis wheat closed at 836 per bushel, up 24 cents. July Kansas City wheat closed at 833 per bushel up 34 and three quarters of a cent. July Chicago wheat closed at 660 and a quarter, up 15 and a quarter cents. July corn closed at 596 and a half, up seven and a half cents. July soybeans closed at 1436 and a half, up 18 and three quarters of a cent. July oats closed at 3.29 per bushel. That's up 10 cents. And that's the commodities update. Please stay tuned. GX and Agriculture will return right after these messages. Welcome back to GX and Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. As you heard earlier this week, the Saskatchewan Water Security Agency is investing over $2 million to improve its flood hazard identification mapping program. Water Security Agency spokesman Sean Osmar says the improvements will help better identify where risks for flooding are and better understand the work needed to keep communities safe. We're working with uh, a number of communities across the province that have been identified as being at risk for, for potential flooding, so we're working with them. Uh, and what we're going to be uh, involved in is uh, flood hazard mapping, which, uh, you know, fairly technical, involves a number of different components to it. We use, uh, there's LIDAR, uh, which is kind of like a laser radar type uh, system. We use uh, hydrometrics, hydrology, uh, hydraulic modeling. There's topography involved in all of that. And we work with, uh, with these communities to, to develop a, a map them to see where their potential risks of flooding may be and then that will help those communities start planning for potential mitigation works that they may need or or anything else that they want to do from that point. He says a number of communities will be involved in these improvements. Yeah so there's a number of communities uh, already underway. They've either been in, in the past or they're continuing on from work that was previously done bigger centers, smaller centers, uh, rural communities, as well as, as the urban centers. It's not limited to any particular geography, so there's communities across the province uh, that will be at some stage uh, along the way here for, for hazard mapping. 
Osmar outlines how this will benefit farmers and ranchers. So as I mentioned before, uh, what this program does is it helps these communities identify where those risks may, may be. And then they can start their planning efforts on, you know, mitigation works that they may need. Uh, you know, if they have to rezone some of their areas, uh, what that might look like for them. Uh, we know, generally speaking, you know, for every dollar invested in flood prevention is worth about twenty dollars in in flood damage, in potential flood damages. So it's a huge savings for the province and, and for communities to, uh, to partake in this and to to get it done. Uh, and like I said, this is not limited to only the big cities. This, this encompasses uh, rural municipalities, smaller centers. So they're going to be looking at, you know, where where some of their infrastructure may be, uh, may be at risk or at hazard, and they, they can then start taking measures to, to upgrade or, or provide mitigation efforts so that smaller communities, agricultural producers, uh, still get the benefit from, from flood protections. He notes anyone can access this new mapping. So we've, uh, a lot of the communities have already been identified. Um, it's not to say that the list is exhaustive at this point, um, but we are currently working with uh, with a number of them. I think we're up to about 19 communities right now. Um, and like I said, some are further along in the process than others, um, but we're going to continue working with them uh, as we get underway. And the process can take up to a year, uh, depending on, you know, how complex their, you know, the geography and the topography of where, where these communities uh, may be. Uh, the extent and scope of, of what they're we're looking to, to accomplish there. So uh, this, this is an ongoing process and an ongoing program, and we're, we're, you know, we're happy to work with a lot of these communities to, to help them get their flood hazard mapped out. Osmar then explains how the maps can be accessed. Yeah, so once these maps are, are created, they will have a physical map. There are some examples online of, of mapping that has been done in the past in some communities. And what you would see is, you know, a, a river course, let's say, near a city, uh, and it would show you what a, a flood might look like. Uh, and it would show you it would be all in red as, as high water levels uh, in and around a community or a city. Uh, and what we're working towards on this is a one in 500 year flood event. So not a very common one, but obviously a very substantial one. So that's the benchmark that we're working towards. And as for the cost? So this is part of the budget from this year. This uh, this round is uh, just over $2 million. It's going to be invested in uh, in this flood mapping for this year. It's, it's a multi-year program, so that money is split over the year. And again, it's it, depending on where a community is along the process, do they how much LIDAR and topography and bathymetric testing and, and modeling will be required for various areas, but we have money set aside. Additional communities the Water Security Agency will be working with include Moose Jaw, Saskatoon, Regina, Weyburn, Tisdale, and Melfort. It's now 1 o'clock in Saskatchewan, 2 o'clock in Manitoba. Time to check the GX94 precision weather forecast. For the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today, Mainly cloudy, winds east at 15 to 25, gusting near 30 at times, and a high of 16 degrees. For tonight, partly to mainly cloudy, winds east at 15 to 25, a low of 6. For tomorrow, mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of spotty showers, winds east at 20 to 35, a high of 16, an overnight low of 7. For Sunday, a 60% chance of developing showers, winds east-northeast at 15 to 30, a high of 14. 
For Monday, an 80% chance of rain with the heaviest north of Yorkton, a high of 10, and Tuesday, partly sunny, a high of 15. In the Paw, it's 14 degrees, Swan River 9, Dauphin, Brandon, Show Lake Russell 15, Roblin 13. Regina is at 17 degrees, Saskatoon, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington 15, Hudson Bay 10, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head 16. The Yorkton-Melville region has a mainly cloudy sky, an east wind at 32 kilometers an hour. 43% is the relative humidity. The temperature is 15 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again on Monday at 12.15 Saskatchewan time for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines. The GX on Agriculture podcast has been brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Future Ford is your automotive expert. From sales to service, they're the ones you can trust to get rolling again sooner.